Okay, good afternoon. Uh, we've got some handouts that uh, we're, we're setting out right now. My name's Larry Cohen. Um, um, it's an honor to be here um, at the AMEN conference. This is my first AMEN conference. Um, it's something that uh, I uh, really am uh, excited about. I'm excited about being a, a part of this, uh, this group. Um, let me open up with just a little bit of prayer first. Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to meet together for this weekend. I pray that we can all get some information that will help us to take care of our patients better and help us to lead them to you. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Um, like I said, I'm a, my name is Larry Cohen. I'm an emergency physician from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, I work in the busiest emergency department in the uh, state. Um, up until a year ago, we were the city hospital, um, and now um, uh, about a year ago, we were leased out to the University of uh, Colorado Health System. Um, we're not a teaching facility at this point. We do have some medical students that rotate through, and our surgical department has residents ro rotating through. But we see over 100,000 people in our ED every, uh, every uh, year. We're going to approach probably 110,000 this year. We're a level two trauma center, actually trying to get level one status. We're a chest pain center, stroke center, all the, all the stuff. So we see a lot of patients. Uh, we have about 130 hours of phys physician coverage a day with 30 hours of uh, uh, mid-level providers. Um, I'm strictly a clinician, and I only work nights. And I do about 160 to 170 hours a, a month. So I know emergency medicine. I'm not, gonna, not an, acad uh, an academic person. Uh, but uh, periodically, I do have to read the literature, I guess, to stay up. So, Anyways, um, the title of the talk, basically, Heart Attacks, Trauma, Alcohol, Mental Illness, Health, and Jesus in the Emergency Department. And I think, you know, Jesus really went to the people. Um, and he would uh, be very comfortable around my emergency department um, with all the people that are sick and all the mental illness and the drunks and the the murderers and, you know, so it's uh, Mark 2, 7, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need for the physician, but they that are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And my emergency department is full of them. I have no financial disclosures, um, although I was actually going to uh, do the, uh, uh, be uh, Rip Esselstyn's uh, on-site physician at their engine two thing that Dr. Uh, Carney was talking about up in uh, Colorado because she does not have a Colorado license and they're gonna come up to Colorado and do their thing, their Whole Foods thing up at uh, uh, Estes Park. They got a little nervous about the altitude, 8,500 feet. And well, you know, I mean, some of them may get a little bit of a, you know, mountain sickness, but I don't expect, expect much in the way of high altitude pulmonary edema or cerebral edema. Um, but they asked me to put up some protocols. So I put up protocols for the worst case scenario. Um, they actually turned out, they, after I sent them the protocols, they went to Sedona, Arizona. So, uh, <laughs> and it's a good thing because if they would have come there, I think, you know, I think uh, the fact that what they're doing, I think God is blessing them. If they would have come to Estes Park, they would have had to evacuate halfway through because of the floods. So anyway, so I do, uh, along with my wife, June, um, we do uh, uh, facilitate uh, the uh, 
CHIP program, which most of you are probably familiar with, coronary, or Complete Health Improvement Program. Um, uh, we've been doing that for about eight years now, um, started by Dr. Hans Diehl, uh, but the real leader of the program is this man, Harold Burden. Um, so, uh, the thing about CHIP and, and health and preventative medicine in general is, you know, you want to help people. Um, and we get more people from the community than we do church members. If any of you are familiar with doing programs like this, that's what happened. And uh, uh, the next slide is a slide of one of the guys from our church who went through our first program. You know, he looked at pictures of me when I was almost 200 pounds and uh, had a little bit more hair, but I was still gray. And, you know, he goes, that's me. I don't want to be that. And, uh, and I did have a bypass um, about 11 years ago. So I'll talk more about that tomorrow. Uh, but he took the program, and sure enough, there he is about six months ago in our hospital after his heart attack because he fell off the program. Yeah, he's trying to get back on it again. But I'm from Colorado. Um, this is just a few miles from our, our home. Uh, this is Garden of the Gods with Pikes Peak in the background. A lot of things to do. We like to go hiking around. Um, if you like doing a stair climber, this is the incline. <laughs> It's about 0.9 tenths of a mile, just under a mile. It's got a 2,100 foot gain, and it's, uh, um, it's about average, average uh, grade is 40%. And if you're an elite Olympic athlete, you can do it in about 18 minutes, that mile in 18 minutes. Pardon? Red Rock? No, this is in, this is in uh, Manitou Springs, right outside of Colorado Springs. So it's a, it's, it's a, fun, a, fun, a fun workout. Um, uh, most people don't go down it. It's very steep. Um, I've gone down it a couple of times. Uh, you, have to, you, it's just, you lose your step, and we get a lot of people in the emergency department from there having heart attacks. It's a long extrication. You know, you have a heart attack midway or halfway up, you know, it's an hour before you're going to get to the hospital. And we got Pikes Peak. There's a the summit, uh, my wife and daughter. We like to do things as a family, especially hiking. Um, uh, this is uh, my son and I uh, like to hike. This is up outside of uh, Vale, kind of up in the mountains. And we, we went and took a, a hike up, and he says, I'll beat you down, Pop. So he did. <laughs> Took me 45 minutes to get down. <laughs> but I can look out our window, we can see bears, we see foxes, we see deer, we see smoke sometimes. And fire sometimes. So, yeah, we, uh, we, we had to be evacuated for about an hour, uh, for about a week uh, from the fire last year. About two miles from where we live, uh, over 300 homes got burnt down. So we were really lucky. So I'm blessed, I would say. Anyways, let's get on to this. Um, I'm going to go ahead and talk about ways to identify or address spiritual care in a busy emergency department practice. Very different than private practice or even in-hospital practice. I'll look at some clinical opportunities in the emergency department for introducing an intensive lifestyle change. And then we'll look at some burnout and some ways to, to improve us. Now, um, how many of you are emergency physicians or work in the emergency department? Nurses? Not too many nurses? Okay, good. because. Um, nurses got, can play such a big role. You probably can't hear this. A typical night in my emergency department. Two things that really kind of get under my skin is this kind of screaming and, and sometimes baby screaming. We're also the uh, children's hospital, so um, like I said, 
I work nights, and where I work, there's three of us overnight, um, and we're so busy. And we're different care units. Um, and the area that I take care, that I work in, it's got 10 regular beds plus three trauma beds. Um, but I also have to take care of the lockdown unit, which is another 10 beds. And that's where we put our, our drunks, our psychs. Every now and then we have Jesus locked up in there. Um, so, you know, I mean. So this is, a tip, this is my, my lockdown unit. You can see I'm LC. Um, alcohol, alcohol, cocaine, substance abuse, suicide, alcohol, you know, and this is all at once. And then on the other side, time, I have these other, on the other side, I have the, you know, regular medical people, shorts of breath, chest pain, altered mental status, some trauma. Um, and then this is you know, typical, well, actually this is a tox screen, you can see all the positives, amphetamine, opiate, cocaine, THC. This is not typical for my department. Usually there's alcohol on board too, so. Um. <laughs> For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And I think that basically that's what we should be doing too. As Christians, as Christian physicians, nurses, allied health people, we are there to help people, to show them God, God through us. Um, deep reflection is not really typically part of what we do as an emergency medicine. Um, so, uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Berlin, he's an in internist bioethicist at, at, at Tel Aviv University, stated, emergency medicine is comprised of disciplined practice of routines and guidelines under conditions of uncertainty, pressure, and time limits. More than any other area, emergency physicians learn to act automatically faster than the speed of philosophical thinking. And that's really it. And we have a very different job um, compared to the primary care physician. Our patients come in by ambulance, they come in by police, family members bring them in, they have an acute change in their, uh, in their health. Um, we don't have the luxury of knowing the patients and their family, their values. They don't, haven't built a trust. You know, they go to the, they pick a primary doctor, they don't pick us. And sometimes it's almost adversarial when you first go in to see a patient. Um, we're the enemy uh, at certain points. We do, we work in a very um, uh, open environment. Um, where I'm at, every ambulance that comes in, they pretty much get frisked down. Um, uh, you know, and that we have very stressful work schedules where a private doctor can cancel his work schedule if, if he needs to. Um, we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, William Oster stated, nothing in life is more wonderful than faith, the one great moving force which we can neither weight in the balance nor t test in the crucible. So addressing spiritual care in a busy emergency department, especially in a place like mine, you know, or not all of us have, you know, get to work uh, or work in, a, uh, in an Adventist health system or any other religious health system where, you know, somebody comes in and goes, I'd like to pray with you. So is it even feasible, especially when you think about patient complaints, um, you know, people's rights? Um, but uh, these surveys, different surveys, what they've shown is the majority of people believe in God, Many of them uh, pray for their health, ask others to pray for them. Many people read the Bible outside and pray outside of uh, church. This Pew study um, in 2007, this is over 35,000 people, U.S. adults, um, question, the majority of people believe in God or a higher spirit. Um, what's interesting to me, I come up from a Jewish background, if you can't tell by my name, Cohen, 
83%, but it doesn't surprise me that less than half are absolutely certain that there's a God. You know, and I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow, too, in my testimony. But we take people that are acute, we see people that are acutely terminal, chronically terminal, acutely ill or injured. They have chronic illness, mental health issues, substance abuse issues. We see it all. Um, unfortunately, uh, some of it is uh, pretty devastating for everybody around. So. Most of the research done for spiritual care looks at um, uh, palliative patients, hospice patients, elderly patients, patients terminally ill, cancer patients, uh, how, you, how, do you, how you take care of, get a spiritual history in your office practice or on the, in the hospital floor. Nothing, there's no research that I've found on emergency department spiritual care um, assessment and intervention, which might be, if you're into research, might be a good thing to do. Um, but so, but the, these are some basic things. Um, and the big thing is listen carefully and, and empathetically, you know, clarify their patient's concerns. And we've talked about that this morning. Um, uh, there was a great, great talk this morning about how to, how to approach this. So um, there is a 2002 JAMA article um, dis, uh, discussing religious and spiritual issues at the end of life, a practical guide for physicians. It's not bad. And then I also have, I don't think those got passed out, but this, uh, it's kind of hard to read in, the, in your um, handout, uh, but I do have a copy of this over here. Uh, but these are basically tools like the HOPE tool, the FICA tool, the SPIRIT tool on how to do a, a history, a spiritual history, what questions to ask and how to ask them. Um, so if you need some help in that, hopefully um, uh, you can, it, it might be, be something that you can use. Our job in the emergency department is to take care of their immediate physical injury. I mean, if somebody comes in and you don't take care of something, um, if they die, you haven't helped them, obviously. We want to get their symptoms under control, especially pain. You know, people that are dying, you know, I mean, we give a lot of pain medications to the, the, the die, chronically dying. Um, but um, if you get their pain under control, you can get them relaxed, get their anxiety under control, you might be able to get them to open up and talk to you, find out, get some cues, the cues of, of, of their fear of dying, their um, spiritual cues, you know, um, they're afraid to die, they're um, anxious about it, they're, uh, they're, they're feeling hopeless, uh, they feel like they don't, uh, they're useless, um, nobody wants, to, you know, these are cues that, hey, we can, there is a better way, you know, and you can open up and you can start talking to them. Unfortunately, again, our time is limited. The big thing is patient, uh, you know, focus care on the patient. And the best way to do it is become compassionate and caring. Compassion means to suffer with. So, you know, you want to be on that journey with them. And this is not saying anything that you don't already know. Um, uh, but again, for us in the emergency department, sometimes we don't have that luxury. So being, being, you know, being fully attentive, very hard sometimes. You go in to see a patient and you're getting a history, your phone goes off, uh, the guy in trauma too, his blood pressure just dropped down to 70 or we do point of care troponins. They're required to call us with every troponin. Uh, the pa your chest pain patient seven, uh, his troponin zero, okay. 
you know, or you know, you know, you're thinking about everything. You got four or five really bad patients going on, or you go, I got you, you got that bad lacerations. It's been sitting there for two hours. You haven't had a chance to get to. All this is going through your mind. So are you giving full 100% attention to that patient? It's hard. It's very hard sometimes. Um, you want to develop an atmosphere of trust, you know, and focus on the whole person. And they talked about the patient's story this morning. That is so important. And you can sometimes get it from the family, especially if the patient can't talk to you. Um, their story, and each person is different. Um, we had a, a guy that was coming in every night for a month, practically, for intoxicated. You know, they, there's no such thing as a junk tank anymore. Oh, they're drunk. They throw them in the ER because they don't want somebody to wake up dead the next morning because they missed something. So um, this guy. And one night, one of the guys was talking to him as he was sobering up and getting him ready to go. And he goes, you know, I'm from New York. And when I'm around my family, I don't drink. Aha. So we all got a collection. <laughs> Next time he came in, that's what the plan was. You know, one of the guys, sure enough, he sobers up in the morning and say, hey, how would you like to go to New York? Yeah. So the guy, you know, one of our partners drove him up to Denver, got him on a bus. He said, talking to the guy, you would... It was 100% different. He was a nice guy. He had, you know, he was fun to be with. He was, you know, we see these patient, patients in a microcosm of their life. They're dirtbags. They're scumballs, you know. I mean, we don't like some of these patients. And sometimes it's hard to like them. Um, God loves them, though. So, you know, um, that's when, when I'm really getting, uh, we'll talk about my burnout later, but, you know, getting stressed, I have to think, you know, who is this person? And every person is different. I don't care who it is. Um, I, sometimes it's hard, you know, when they come bring somebody for medical clearance because uh, during the arrest they got a little bump on the head like the guy that, that killed, murdered two young people. Um, and am I supposed to, you know, I'm glad I don't have to judge him. So, um, but we need to focus on the, you know, on the inherent dignity of the people, regardless of their physical conditions or mental condition. Praying with patients, I think, is so important. It's, we don't always have that time. I've had patients, though, the family say, can we pray with you? Would you pray with us? You know, they, and I don't know why they ask me. They don't, a lot of my partners don't get asked, as far as I know. Um, and say, yes, you know, sometimes I'll say, I'll be praying for you. Can I, can I have a prayer with you right now? Most of the time, it's taken pretty positively. We saw 92% of Americans, U.S. adults, believe. And it's like she said earlier, you know, what does it hurt? So, but again, we have to do this in a loving, non-threatening, non-coercive manner because we don't want to violate the patient's trust in us. You know, if the first thing we do, they think, uh, you know, he said, oh, I'm going to pray for pray. You know, I mean, I, every time I do a procedure, pretty much, I, I don't care how many times I've done it, I pray that it goes well. You know, I don't think the patient wants to see me, or the family wants to see me praying, please let me get the spinal tapper. Please let me get the central line. You know, I mean, they're going to, you know. And when they say, oh, that was a nice job, I go, and I'll tell them, I prayed to God that it would go, go well. Um, and I try not to take credit for any of those procedures. Uh, and we do a lot of them. Um, you know, our, you know um, we do, unfortunately, too many thoracotomies in our emergency department. So. But I like what uh, Helen White, Ellen White said, the view held by some that spirituality is a detriment to health is a sophistry of Satan. 
The religion of the Bible is not detrimental to the health of either body or mind. The influence of the Spirit of God is the very best medicine for disease. Heaven is all health, and all the more deeply heavenly influences are realized, the more sure will be the recovery of the believing invalid. The true principles of Christianity open, uh, open before all a source of inestimable happiness. Religion is a continual wellspring from which the Christian can drink at will and never exhaust the fountain. Now, Christ's method alone will give true success to teach, reaching the people. He mingled with man as one who desired their good. He showed sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs. He won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. That was from Ellen White and Ministry of Healing. Creating a, uh, an environment of compassion where patients feel their emotional and spiritual needs are met um, is the heart of holistic care. The emergency department is very vulnerable, however, because of the intensity of the illnesses people have, the dynamics of the department. You know, it's, it sometimes is very difficult, and we can't always be perfect. You know, we want to be perfect, but we can't always be. And you have to take care of yourself, too. We have too many tasks and not enough time. Um, sometimes it can be very discouraging. Patient satisfaction surveys are big. The hospital administration wants to, you know, capture the consumer. You know, the patient do speak uh, of the importance of uh, the practitioners meeting their emotional and spiritual needs. Um, they actually, it, there's been some studies shown patients pay a priority, uh, you know, um, uh, place a high priority um, on this, uh, uh, on spirituality. And so, you know, you're not, you're not going to be uh, uh, faulted for doing that. It makes the patients happier. The, the, the hospital scores go up. You know, we get these Press-Ganey scores on how well you do. Uh, it's amazing. Um, I think I give a lot of pain medicine, and I never seem to make the patients give them enough. You know, pain's not controlled. Now, I had a gentleman not too long ago comes in. He says he's got bad arthritis on his knees. Uh, the tramadol his doctor gives him just not helping. The guy weighed 450 pounds. I said, you know why they were, I, he goes, I know. He goes, um, but the only thing that helps is the Percocet. There we go. And I said, you know, you can, uh, you know, if you lose some weight, you know, get on a better healthy diet. And he said, they're they're, well, they're talking about doing a, uh, um, a gastric bypass. But then he told me, because I don't know why I'm so fat, I, I hardly eat anything. You know, but please, can I have my Percocets? But you know, we uh, deliver high-tech care for diagnosing, treating, um, monitoring the people. Um, that, you know, this ever calls ever more for a humanistic approach uh, uh, to treat the whole person. You know, they come in there, they're frightened, they feel abandoned, they're powerless, they're, they're panicked, you know, their whole life is crumbling before them, or sometimes they think that it is, it may not be, uh, but everybody comes to the emergency room, you know, it's emergency for them. And some of them are very sick, and it's scary. Yeah, we, so um, we don't want them to feel depersonalized. We have to make them feel comfortable. And that's where sometimes the nurse, nurses do a great job, um, some more than other. Uh, but this is where a nurse can really step in and continue and really hold their hand, sometimes just touching somebody. You know, it can be a luxury in the emergency department, treating the patient, mind, body, and spirit. But it is a, it's a commitment we have to be willing to make. Uh, we have such an influence on um, 
on our patients. Um, and they get to know you. They understand what kind of person you are. They like you. You give them some trust. Um, and you can do a little bit better caring. Again, got to listen, confront their reality, you know, be a fellow, you know, be a fellow uh, pilgrim on their journey. Um, but you have to remember, it is a privilege. It's a privilege to be part of their patient's care. Um, and when you start getting into their spiritual aspect, you know, that's very intimate. And that's, you got to take that and believe that as a privilege. Talk about some research. Um, there is research, a lot of research in religion and health. And uh, um, uh, this, uh, this study, um, uh, well, let's see, before, before 2000, um, from the 19th century, uh, more than 1,200 empirical studies uh, have examined the relationship between religion and health. Since 2000, more than 3,000 studies have shown. And basically, the, more, the majority uh, of these studies um, uh, show, uh, show, um, ha show some overwhelming uh, uh, evidence that, that indicators of religiosity, spirituality, faith um, ha are markers of personal and, um, and the population health. Most studies are cross-sectional, so they really can't uh, show between cause and effect. However, um, the prospective uh, clinical trials do support the findings from the cross-sectional studies. And a lot of the study, you know, maybe more, more, more of this research because of the Joint Commission, um, who basically say patients have a fundamental right to their spiritual values. Um, so that's kind of uh, when somebody says, you know, why are you talking about religion to patients? I go, well, the J you know, Joint Commission says we should. You know, oh, okay. You know, we don't want to upset them. So um, Strawbridge uh, did a 28-year perspective assessment of more than uh, 5,000 adults. What they found was weekly attendance of religious service decreased the relative risk of dying by 23%. The effect in women was approximated the effect of not smoking. So um, Koenig uh, um, did a follow-up study, basically confirmed it with nearly 4,000 uh, uh, community uh, dwelling adults, age 64 to 101. Similar effect, and again, um, it was strongest in women. Um, the uh, National Health uh, Interview uh, Survey of Multiple Cause of Death, it was a random survey done of more than 20,000 Americans. What they found was that uh, whites who regularly attended uh, uh, services lived seven years average longer than those who did not, and it was twice, 14 uh, years uh, longer for blacks. Um, after controlling for uh, multiple covariates and explanatory factors, the dying during the eight-year follow-up was 50% higher in those who nev never attended religious services than those who attended more than once a week. And that is right, once a week. So, um, it's kind of a, this religious attendance um, associated with uh, adult mortality in the United States in a graded fashion. Uh, people who never attended exhibit a 1.87 uh, time the risk of death uh, during the follow-up period than then those who never attended. Um, this translates into a seven-year difference in life expectancy at the age of 20. Okay. Uh, this was a good study by Lutendorf um, in, the, uh, in health uh, psychology. What he did is he looked at uh, 557 adults. Um, it was a prospective study on religious attendance and serum interleukin-6. What they found was the risk of uh, a, Frequent attendance uh, reduced the risk of dying in the six-year follow-up by 78%. And 
what it should, it seemed to be mediated by low uh, or decreased levels of serum interleukin-6. High interleukin-6 levels are an indicator of immune system dysfunction, and this might give a biological mechanism why religious um, attendance uh, may influence uh, health. I mean, God knew what he was doing when he made, when he, when he made us. Um, and then again, religious beliefs are going to influence many medical decisions like DNR, uh, end-of-life uh, uh, care, uh, advanced directives. Um, the physical health benefits uh, uh, make sense given what's known about the effects of negative emotions um, on health outcomes and the quality of uh, life, particularly people with heart disease and cancer. I mean, science is great for uh, uh, showing this, but Ellen White uh, also stated that. Um, the relation which exists between the mind and the body is very intimate. When one is affected, the other sympathizes. The condition of the mind affects the health of the physical system. If the mind is free and happy from a consciousness of right doing and a sense of satisfaction in causing happiness to others, it creates a cheerfulness that will react upon the whole system causing a freer circulation of the blood and a strong and a toning up of the entire body. The blessing of God is a healing power, and those who are abundant and benefit, benefiting other, others will realize the wondrous blessing in both heart and life. And so it benefits them, it benefits us. So how do we address spiritual care in the emergency department? You know, in times of illness, you know, people really start questioning about life and death, things like that. We see patients from every different specialty. You know, from, you know, how many times do we see a miscarriage? You know, we might see four or five in a night. You know, it's the same routine for us. It's so emotional. I mean, I forget, you know, uh, every now and then a woman actually cries because she's miscarrying. Uh, not necessarily the 15-year-old, but, uh, you know, and I forget, these people want to have these babies, and this is hard on them. You know, sometimes they come in, you tell them they're, they're, they're pregnant and say, well, I'm going to go get myself an abortion. These are, these are big spiritual and philosophical and ethical uh, things that we have to do uh, and think about. Um, every shift is a potentially a mass casualty you know, situation. Um, sometimes we get overwhelmed. Flu season is a great example. But you should have a plan the best you can. We have, a, we have protocols for everything. Have a plan on how you're going to approach spiritual issues in your patients. You know, time is very precious in the emergency department. You have to be non-judgmental. You know, understand that they're scared when they come in. We're very comfortable in the emergency department. It's our home. You know, there's nothing scary about a monitor going off. You know, I mean, how many times does the blood, you know, the alarm go off on the monitor because somebody moved around? You know, or uh, they're going, what's going on up there? You know, you know, the blood pressure. It's 150. Oh, yeah, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> when it just when the one's gone, then let me know. Okay. Um, we want to address your physical problems first. Okay. Um, like, like, we, like uh, Ellen White said, you know, and then we can uh, ask, and then we, we can say, let's talk about God. No, certainly don't coerce our views um, and be compassionate. Let the door open for discussion. You know, you have to find the best way for your personality and for your practice. You know, not everybody, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm the type of guy that I go boom, 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 boom. You know, I see anywhere from 25 to 35 patients in a nine hour shift. Um, granted, my drunks don't take so long, but I've started thinking, what can I do for these guys? They're unconscious. They're, you know, they, you know, they just get a little track or a little uh, um, steps to Christ, put it in their pocket. You know, they may burn it to keep themselves warm at night. I don't know. You know, they're homeless, but they may, you know, you never know. 
look what happened. Doug Batchelor found a Bible in a cave, and look what happened. You don't know who you're going to affect. How about people that are dying? You know, some of my friends say, well, the code's not, we're keep calling, you know, they'll go, go to the light, go to the light, you know. You know, I say, get in their ear. They may still hear it. It's, you can still accept Jesus. He can be your savior. Matthew 20, 1 through 16, the, the uh, workers in the vineyard, last is first. Doesn't matter when you accept them. So, um, my brother was a Christian long before I was. And my father was dying of cancer. And he told me, yeah, I, I told dad, you know, we grew up Jewish. I talked to him about Jesus, and, you know, and, uh, you know, and trying to get him to accept Christ. And, you know, now I, I was married to a Christian. Um, talk about that again tomorrow. But uh, I got mad at him for doing that. I go, really? Do you need to do that while he's on his deathbed? You know, to this day, I hope he accepted him. Um, good book, um, actually two books, Handbook of Religion and Health, first and second editions by Harold Koenig. These are books that he takes all the literature the last, you know, really uh, 100 and some years. Uh, one from 2000, first edition, it was before 2000, looks at all the literature. He goes through it, he critiques how, how well done they are, how good, and it, it just, uh, just fantastic books. Uh, the second edition came out in 2012, and it's really all the studies from 2000 on. So, And then uh, be Christ-like. I mean, you know, love these people. Love these the best you can. We're going to go on uh, now, uh, talk about a little lifestyle medicine. Of course, at the scientific assembly up in Denver from, that Asa put on, here was our welcome breakfast. Now, they do have, a, they do try to talk about wellness for us, but uh, um, I think we'd uh, make our ER patients a lot happier if we'd put that out in the waiting room, too. But um, we've actually changed things. Uh, we see over 100,000 a year wait, or 100,000 patients a year. We hardly ever have a waiting time over two hours. Um, so. And maybe because we don't have, you know, most people that have that kind of volume, they have residents and stuff, so we don't have residents. But we've changed some, some things, some for the good, not, some, not so good. But um, we don't have super long waits anymore, usually. I used to come in at night, and there'd be people there four, five, six hours, you know. Now, almost never, which is nice. So, introducing a health-intensive lifestyle change in the emergency department. We all know that uh, a healthy lifestyle, a right diet, right, right uh, exercise can not only prevent but arrest and reverse disease. The medical literature is daily coming out with, you know, with science that proves it. You know, and what they're doing? Confirming the Bible. So I'm just going to go through some, some case studies that, uh, or these are real patients in my emergency department that uh, um, I started over the years trying to introduce them to a healthy lifestyle. Uh, Mary Smith, 68-year-old lady, brought in by her daughter because her daughter went over to the house. Blood pressure was 160 over 90, rushes to the ER. Um, no physical complaints. Medical history was negative. Uh, the physical exam only positive that uh, blood pressure 162 over 92. Look at her med list. Multiple vitamins, fish oil supplements, vitamin B complex supplements, CoQ10, vitamin D, calcium, vitamin E. Asked about her diet. She ate out at least five times a week. Uh, did not cook foods herself, basically packaged foods that she'd, she'd cook up. So I talked to them about 
10 minutes, had some time, and went over and said, you don't really need to be put on medicine. I don't need to give you medicine now to bring your blood pressure down. It's not dangerously high. If I, I do, I could maybe make things worse. And, um, you know, I thought it went well. And they even sent a letter to the hospital. All that doctor did was talk about diet and didn't address or treat my mother's dangerously high blood pressure. <laughs> All right, this 29-year-old guy comes in. Uh, I woke up at 1 in the morning, um, had a nice, big, uh, greasy dinner um, with uh, right upper quadrant epigastric pain, going to, his right, going to the flank. And uh, he's had it before, never lasted this long. Um, he's pretty sick, kind of nauseated. Uh, a lot of tender, uh, tenderness, vital signs, not out of whack, a little overweight, um, tender, right upper quadrant, positive Murphy sign, um, Y count 16,000, LFTs, bilirubin up a little bit, normal lipase, ultrasound was positive for stones and cholecystitis, glucose was 290. I told him that, uh, you know, you may have diabetes. Well, my parents had diabetes. Okay. Well, you know, before, uh, it took about three, four minutes to talk to him, say, listen, you don't have to have it. You know, you can, poss you can possibly prevent going on medicine or get off the medicine because they're going to start you on medicine while you're in the hospital, you know, and maybe you won't have to do it. And he goes, yeah, really? How? You go on a low-fat, plant-based diet and exercise. That's what he said to me. I'd rather take the pill. Okay. So next one was a 32-year-old guy, fever and rectal pain for a couple days, no other complaints. Pastoral history was negative. Review system, he said, poly or polydipsia. I said, for how long? He goes, for, a, for some time. Mother had type 2 diabetes, a lot of complications. She had an MI, she had a uh, right, knee, right leg amputation uh, from it. So he was, he, was, he was familiar with diabetes and its outcome. So what he did, uh, you know, vital signs like that, a little febrile, had you know, physical exam, rec, uh, perical abscess. Um, and here was his labs, white count 18,000, sugar was 565, everything else. Okay, well, it was a busy, busy night. But I go, I remember what happened last time, I took three minutes to talk to this guy. I sit down for 15, 20 minutes with him and his wife. His wife is also 250 plus pounds. Two beautiful kids, one four, one six, nice family, you know, and you just wanted to help them. And I started talking about diet. I talked about, you know, you don't have to do this, you know, you can go on an easy, health program that would um, just very simple, you know, you know legumes, vegetables, fruit, uh, some nuts, um, whole grains, and you can, you know, get some exercise. You can lose this weight. You can get healthy. You may not have to have the same problem your mother did. And they look like they're getting excited about it. And um, the wife's getting excited. You know, hey, this, you know, this, this could be, be it for us. And then he said to me this, but I like my meat. And as he said that, I looked at his wife, and it's like he plunged a knife into her chest. You like your meat more than you like our, your family. So last one was 58-year-old guy comes in with chest pain. He had a prior PE, pulmonary embolism, uh, from after he had a bicycle accident and broke his uh, uh, pelvis. It was basically reproducible, not really, you know, non-radiating, non-pleuritic. Um, he had a past medical history of the PE, high cholesterol, um, uh, pelvic fracture, and a TIA. He was on Coumadin. He couldn't take statins because of the side effects. Um, uh, I diagnosed him with chest wall pain. Then he had, but during the night, during the, uh, while he was in there, it was kind of quiet. He was a nice guy. I, I, you know, he rode bikes. I ride bikes. I do triathlon. So I went back and we talked to him. And about the fourth time, you know, I mean, he goes, 
He goes, you know, when, the first time you came in, when you left, I told my wife, oh no, here's that doctor that talks about diet. <laughs> well, we had ju we're just about to start, um, this is like early Sunday morning, we're about to start our first chip class for, that, you know, or the, our first out of our chip class uh, that, that season, so, um, that, so on Monday. So I told him, you know, we're going to do this, we're doing this health program, it's four weeks, I told him a little bit about it, and he goes, he shows up, and he takes the class. So uh, what he told me, his, his cholesterol went from 260 down to 120. He said, on that, on metastatin, it never went down that far. And he got, so he had me come and talk to his church on, uh, on health and things like that. And he's trying to do health programs over there. So what are some opportunities we have? You know, what, the one that I find that listened the most right then and seemed the most excited are my acute coronary uh, patients, especially the guy having the STEMI, the, the MI, the heart attack. You know, um, you know, guy coming 50 years old, you know, you get the EKG, you know, he shows him having acute MI. The, uh, you know, the wife will usually say, but he's in such good condition. He's so healthy. And I'll say, yes, ma'am, until 10 seconds ago, huh? You know, I go, this doesn't, and I tell him it doesn't happen overnight. I go, but there's, and I, then this is where um, I was blessed with my bypass. I can tell you, you know, I had a bypass 11 years ago, and uh, I didn't, ha and had I known then that, had I known then what I know now, I would not have the bypass because I wouldn't have a heart attack. I just had symptoms. But with that, I tell them, you know, with that, I do triathlons, I do marathons, I, you know, and they look at me and they say, hey, he looks fit, you know. And so, um, you know, so, uh, I usually, those are the ones that are really listening, but every patient's, every patient's an opportunity, whether they're obese, hypertensive, have diabetes, have autoimmune disease, cancer, you know, we can talk, we can help everyone. Um, and what I usually do is I have a page printed out, and I change it up periodically. At the top I have our website for the CHIP program, it says local Colorado Springs, they say local, oh, it's here in town. And with that, though, and I do, do tell them that you know it's not that uh, that my wife and I uh, facilitate it, but we don't make any money from it. In fact, it, I will tell them it costs us money. We actually pour money into it. We do it through our church, and it's you know it's a it's a ministry that we do. I you know the New Start website, Dr. McDougall's website, uh, give some books like uh, Goodbye Diabetes by Wes Youngberg, uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by uh, Esselstyn, and his son's Engine Two Diet book. And get a lot, and get a lot of feedback from that. A lot of positive feedback, and even letters to the hospital saying, "Hey, this doctor really cared about me." More so than uh, he didn't give me my pain medicine. And and my partners, I, I'll get, I'll get, uh, find notes in my box. Call this guy; he, he's interested in your health program, you know, because they know what I do. Um, I've got a couple of ca card cardiologists uh, that. Um, um, have come actually talk. They believe in it. They come and talk to my uh, at our graduation. One guy goes, uh, I haven't seen him for a bit. Cardiologist, and I'm seeing him walk in. He's coming, and I'm leaving for work. Leaving, uh, leaving work. He looks healthy. He looks slim and trim. And he said, Hey, he goes, Hey, Larry. Go, yeah. He goes, Have you ever heard of Engine Two Diet? You know, that's what I'm doing. Go, oh yeah, I've heard of that. You know, so, so, yeah. Anyway, so, but be an example. It's kind of hard to tell people. You know. Uh, um, eat healthy and not doing it yourself. I mean, we have to be honest with ourselves as them. So, right, first, next we're going to go on to a little about burnout. Um, how much? I think the 220 or 420? 10 minutes, okay. Um, and uh, uh, Pastor Finley talked about this this morning, which I think thought was great. 
Uh, loss of, what is burnout? It's loss of enthusiasm for work or kind of emotional exhaustion, uh, feelings of cynicism, or the, the personalization, and a low sense of uh, personal accomplishment. And as he said this morning, it's um, the burnout among, uh, the prevalence of it among US physicians is, is alarming. And then they did, um, physicians um, in specialties in front line of medicine, specifically emergency medicine, are at the highest risk. We work long hours and we have greater struggles with our work-life integration. Okay. And, and like you said this morning, after you adjust um, for hours worked per week um, and level of ed education, um, higher degrees um, seem to reduce the risk of burnout outside the field of medicine, where a medical degree increases the risk. So it's not mirroring societal trends. You know. uh, and then it's more common, you know, what, what's interesting is, and, and uh, Pastor Finley mentioned this today, nearly one out of two physicians report at least one symptom of burnout. And what is it really also interesting is what's low. Um, uh, preventative medicine is, has one of the lowest uh, rates of burnout. Um, and if you're, you know, if you get really struggling, teach a health program. It's amazing. I tell the people after, after I've done, after four weeks, I remember the very first CHIP program we did, at the end of that program, I, I told them I got more satisfaction out of doing that program than a night at work, even if I put four chest tubes in and crack open a chest. Because people are happy. You, and the thing is, you get to know them too. You know, no. And the Med Medscape did a similar uh, uh, survey uh, this past March. And again, emergency medicine, uh, we're number one for burnout. Uh, and what it does is it, it, it erodes professionalism. Uh, it, it influences the quality of care, increased risk for medical errors, promotes early retirement, then affects our private lives with uh, um, uh, broken relationships, problematic use with alcohol and drugs. I mean, I believe it can even happen to an Adventist. Um, and suicide ideation. Um, I think job stress and poor um, or inadequate treatment for mental illness is probably one of the reasons why physicians have such a higher than average rate of suicide. In the last four years, we've had five physicians in our town commit suicide. One was an emergency physician. And when I was in the Air Force, Air Force um, we, uh, we, we uh, worked in the e emergency department at the Air Force Academy. He was my medical director. You would never see the guy without a smile. Happy-go-lucky. But uh, as a, also, as emergency physician, he knows how to kill himself. And he took, um, uh, I think, 200 out of van, went in the garage, turned on the car, and, uh, and it worked. So. And what does it lead to? Loss of interest in our work. You know, the attraction that we once had, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, we want to avoid it. Um, it, it it's almost, we, become, we, loathe, we almost loathe going to work. Um, we're angry much of the time where something that would normally wouldn't bother you, you know, you just deflect it, you know, really just sets you off. Unable to find joy in your life. Things that once were fun, you no longer find enjoyable. Going on a vacation is a chore. When you come back, you're no more refreshed than when you left. So what do we do? We make a good living. We can buy toys. You know, we try to buy that piece. And what we wind up doing is, oh gosh, uh, um, I have no more no retirement left. So we can, you know, spend ourselves into uh, into uh, debt. And then, of course, the physical and emotional problems, you know, anxiety, depression, headaches, um, loss of appetite, loss of uh, sex interest. So, 
we can become isolated, which can lead to depression, and even worse, you know, or, you know, leads to alcohol, substance abuse. You know, we, we can write, you know, we can get prescriptions written for drugs all the time. We get poor physician-patient communication, which can lead to poor decision-making, increased malpractice risk. Deni we're great at denial. You know, even when it's florid, you know, say, well, I'm going to be okay. Um, you know, it's no different than the patient with chest pain denying that chest pain is his heart, only to, you know, pr you know deny it and uh, delay treatment that would be beneficial and then suffer the consequences to come in, you know, at 18 hours after his MI. No different for our, uh, our burnout. So why are we at risk? In medicine, it monopolizes our time, my being, my success is, is basically my job. Uh, we, we become over-responsible. We, we exist in a fishbowl. I mean, every patient we see, somebody's going to see, some other doctor's going to review it, and, you know, uh, we get the worst uh, uh, feedback from the people that never stepped foot in the emergency department. We have a poor sense of community. Uh, it's a hospital-based practice, so we don't have much control over nursing, techs, things like that. Um, uh, the intensity of the work um, by case types, by volume, and the unpredictability of both. And then we have to make rapid decisions, and sometimes, usually, with little information. You know, the shift work, circadian rhythms are off, you know, I mean, um, loss of sleep or lack of sleep uh, uh, is going to affect us, um, both uh, mentally and physically. Um, uh, there's rare appreciation for our work by both patients and colleagues. Perfect example, guy comes in, dislocated ankle, I reduce, get it back, put him in a splint, send him to orthopedist. Orthopedist uh, joked with me, you know, a year later, hey, remember that guy that you reduced his ankle? Yeah. He goes, oh, man, he has a beautiful cabin up in the, uh, up in the mountains, and he lets me use it at any time. He thanks me so much for fixing his ankle. All he goes, all I did was put a cast on him. You reduced it, you know, so... <laughs> It's uh, kind of typical for us, but we're not in it for uh, the accolades, I guess. You know, unexpected, uh, unrealistic expectations by, uh, for us by, you know, the patient, the family, uh, hospital staff, administration, um, as well as uh, unrealistically uh, ones that we set for ourselves. And we leave little margin for ourselves personally with all we do. Um, any little thing, an illness, uh, unplanned uh, personal problem can just put us over the edge. And we also can't have problems with establishing healthy boundaries. Sometimes it's hard for us to say no. Hey, can you be on the committee? Sure. Can you do that extra trip? Sure. You know, where um, we, our, our profession becomes more important than our personal lives. And then there's organizational contribution. I'll go through this kind of fast. The workload. I mean, you can only do so much at once. Um, Lack of control of the work setting, uh, the breakdown of the workplace as a supportive community, um, reward system, um, fairness like scheduling, you know, hey, I'm going to get all the good shifts, you're going to get all the uh, poor shifts, um, and values set on us by, you know, by, uh, or difference in values between us and, the, and administration or other departments. Dr. Cohen, I mean, I got a letter uh, a couple months ago, Dr. Cohen orders too many CAT scans. My medical director tried to tell him, well, Dr. Cohen only works in our critical care. He, he sees all the sick patients, all the trauma. He orders more CAT scans because, you know, as opposed to some of the other people, they'll work in our, in our less acute areas and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I just laughed at that. But that's, that's a problem, though, and that can put stress on you. So how do we deal with burnout? Understand and admit that you're at risk. 
the title MD should not mean malignant denial. You know, we're you know um, we need to uh, we need to really um, you know educate ourselves about it. Um, the ASAP.org website has a wellness book for emergency physicians that you can download. It's a pretty good book. Um, some, some, some of it's uh, kind of hokey, but it's not bad. Um, you know, and then understand that you know you can see the early signs. You can't see the early signs yourself, but how many times do you see somebody in your, a partner being burned out? Do you say anything to them? I say be proactive. One, pray. I mean, God can help us so much. And remember, go back to where you were. You know, we used to be like this job. And there's a reason we like this job. Um, and uh, get to know the patients. I mean, when I, when I really you know, feel down about it, I start thinking about that. I, I, I say, I like this patient. And I talk to them, and I pray with them. And all of a sudden, it's fun going to work. Get a burnout buddy, either, whether it's your wife, your husband, um, a coworker, a good friend. Say, hey, if you see me starting to go off, let me know. And at that point, get some professional help if needed. You know, learn to uh, develop emotional honesty. Here they're talking about, um, you know, cry. You know, a bad situation comes and, you know, you may have to have, a, you know, a, um, some sort of a, a mass casualty debriefing with, with everybody. We had a kid come in. Um, they shouldn't have brought him in. He was dead, three years old. Uh, uncle stabbed, uh, killed, uh, six months old. and nearly decapitated the kid. kid came in, uh, antibated through the trach that the slasher did. Um, you know, it was a terrible, terrible thing. One of our techs had been there for six, seven years. Big, ruler guy. We had to let him off for a week. He couldn't handle it, so. Um, debriefing is good. So, we have to develop a ba balance. You know, physical balance, staying healthy, eating right, exercise, emotional balance, spiritual balance. So, so go to church. Pray, read the Bible, read Ellen White. Um, it's so important. Relationship balance, work and career balance. Again, remember why you went into emergency medicine. Um, you know, this humanity, this reconnection with them. You know, we want to be, you know, when you were born, did you, you know, um, little Dr. Cohen, here he is. You know, we've been doctors, you know, all of our lives just, didn't get, get, get the title until we graduated medical school. You know, if you have conflicts with the hospital or your group, face those issues. You know, uh, be proactive. Um, and if you really are having a problem, take time off. So what's my definition of a good day? What really makes me flip? A day without a registered letter. Yeah. You know, I, I got to... Uh, I, in fact, I was supposed to do a deposition on a lawsuit because this guy, the day before, saw a patient with a TIA, referred him to the TIA clinic. They come the next day having a stroke. I mean, he got the CAT scan and boom, I mean, it was a massive stroke. Well, I'm getting sued because I, I, my dictation said, I reviewed Dr. So-and-so's uh, record. Well, I'm getting sued as his supervisor because I said I reviewed, you know, so, and I go, can't you, I told Lars, can't you just say, hey, he, you know, he diagnosed it, he admitted him, you know, nah, they're going to try to get you scared to say something bad about the other doctor. So there is need of coming close to people by personal effort. 
If less time were spent sermonizing, the more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those that rejoice, accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God. This will not, cannot be without fruit. Ellen White, Ministry of Healing. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.